On the Nonlinear Healing Podcast, we talk about all the aspects of healing. The beautiful parts and the painful parts, too. We acknowledge that healing is not linear, and there are many ups and downs in every person's story. And in fact, we celebrate the messy parts just as much as the pretty parts. This is Nonlinear Healing with Courtney Brooke. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Nonlinear Healing Podcast with Courtney Brooke. I'm your host, Courtney Brooke. I am so excited to share this interview with you today. It is with a dear friend of mine, Kelsa Blaine, owner and operator of Highline Boudoir and Erotica. Um, she is an incredible force, a kindred spirit. And I am so excited to share her story with you all. Just a couple of quick housekeeping items here. Just as a reminder, we have a couple of Exhale meetings coming up. So for those of you who are not familiar, Exhale is the anxiety support group that I run in the Westmoreland County. Um, we float a couple of different places. We are out in Latrobe now at the Mangata. That'll be happening on the second Thursday of each month. And then this upcoming Monday, the 17th, October 17th, we will be at the Serenity Hill Counseling and Wellness, which is where I practice out of. I have some private clients that I see out of that location as well. So super excited for that. And then Friday, we'll be in Greensburg at our home. We'll be snacking, drinking some tea, catching up, and exhaling. So while exhale is um, focused on anxiety and managing anxiety, there are a lot of themes around depression and mental health, and any and all persons are welcome. So don't let the word anxiety cause you too much anxiety. Trust me you'll fit right in. So come join us at any of our locations. Come one, come all. Uh, very low cost. And if cost is an issue for you, please reach out. We do not want the cost to ever prohibit anybody from coming. So enough of the housekeeping. I want to jump into this interview. So Kelsa, Kelsa and I have known each other for a very long time, since we were little girls. Um, I know I've known her since I was at least 10 years old. I had a sleepover at her house, and I remember all of her little brothers and sisters, and how big and beautiful I thought her house was, and she was always just such a happy spirit. Her laugh is contagious. I can't wait for you guys to hear her laugh. Uh, it's great. And I also very clearly remember her coaching me through a near panic attack when I was about 12, when we were at Cedar Point for like a church field trip thing. I really wanted to go on this roller coaster and I was also really afraid to do it. So I almost forgot about it. And then she mentioned it to me the one day and I was like, oh my God, I totally remember that. Um, so she and I are definitely kindred spirits. Our stories overlap and have a lot of similar themes and we've even had people ask if we are sisters so I do want to give a little bit of a trigger warning here because um, we're going to talk about some pretty heavy stuff we're going to talk about physical abuse religious trauma sexual abuse some things that might be considered pretty taboo but what I've really come to learn about things that are quote-unquote taboo is that there are most human side. So I read a book. It's by Ernest Becker. It's called The Denial of Death. And it talks about how really at the end of the day, the parts that are most human of us are the ones that we shun because they're also the most animal-like. So the theory goes that we are afraid of things like death, sex, all of that stuff, because it reminds us that we're just an animal. And essentially, at the end of the day, we are gods who shit. Um, so we don't like to talk about the fact that, you know, we have these urges. We don't have a whole lot of control over the, the sexual part of us. We certainly don't have control over when we shit. Um, so 
very interesting topics, very intriguing topics for me. And I hope that you find them as intriguing as I do and as Kelsa does. I truly believe that talking about these sorts of things are how we end the stigma. Um, it's really when we place things into categories and make them taboo that we have the breeding grounds for things like abuse. Because when we don't talk about things, when they stay behind closed doors, that's when they're hurtful. So I hope that you enjoy this interview. Take a moment and settle in as you prepare for Kelsa's story of nonlinear healing. Welcome to the podcast, Kelsa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. Me too. Um, I know that you and I have connected a lot over our healing journeys and um, we have talked about some different tools and things that I am so super excited to talk to my audience about. But first, I'd like for my audience to just get a sense of who you are. And so set a backdrop here for us. Tell me about where you were born, maybe when about you were born. Tell us a little bit about your family, that kind of stuff. Yeah. All right, cool. So I was actually born and raised here in Pittsburgh. So not too far away. <laughs> and I, I kind of always disliked that. I was, I always wanted to be one of those girls that moved away and had grand adventures, but I was like, eh, it never ended up panning out. But so I was born and raised here in Pittsburgh. Um, my dad was also born and raised here in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and um, my mom, it was like a transplant from Cleveland when she was 19, met my dad, quickly had me um, in the midst. They were kind of, um, entrepreneurs themselves growing up and and till they kind of stumbled on um it's called natural it's like natural home remedies so like you book an appointment to see my mom she does this thing called iris analysis and she figures out the different ways that maybe different herbs could help you and so they've ended up making like a whole like empire business out of that out in uh, greensburg pennsylvania and um Growing up, seeing them be entrepreneurial, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And um, also aside with that, they were deeply religious. (laughs) So that's where a lot of the drama comes in. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. For sure. So um, it's so interesting because like looking back, I saw them as such entrepreneurial powerhouses, but then the religion, oh my goodness, they were just I don't know. They were just deeply religious. So the type of religion they were was like a, I, I liken it to like Westboro Baptist because some people recognize that from out in Texas, um, but very conservative evangelical Christians. Um, I grew up most of my life Baptist and we called them fundamental Baptists. Um, <laughs> and then when I was nine, um, I had a brother, a biological brother named Isaac he was two years younger than me. So we grew up together, um, kind of like upper middle class, my mom and dad being entrepreneurial, but we also grew up completely homeschooled and isolated. So um, growing up, the church that we belonged to was incredibly conservative and they all homeschooled. And there was like, at its hey- in its heyday, it was like 150 people. And it was incredibly conservative, Courtney, like no jewelry, no makeup, like denim skirts, the whole nine yards, you homeschool your kids. And of course, like most of the families were huge. Like the pastors the pastor had nine kids himself. And that was like the thing that you wanted, like for, as a woman, you, you wanted to have a lot of children. And, um, what, what is the verse quiver full of arrows? there's like a verse in the Bible that like the more children you have, the more blessed you are. Um, Mm. And I think my mom started to feel that like societal religious pressure because when I turned nine and my brother turned seven, she like desperately wanted babies, but they had had a vasectomy earlier in life. So that didn't, wasn't possible. And we were around these mothers all the time. Like Courtney, so many pregnant women, like, Mm-hmm. Like we group baby showers because so many of them were due around the same time. Um, and my mom just kind of had to see, sit there and watch it all happen with her two kids in a vasectomy and making it impossible. So um, she really was, she worked very, very hard and ended up 
of being able to afford a lot of adoptions. So we ended mm -hmm. up with nine within like two years adopting six kids. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so you went from basically like just you and your brother yep. and isolated, homeschooled, and then bam, here's six more siblings. <laughs> siblings of a different race so like that mm. was a big thing too because I mean we were completely I mean we really were whitewashed like I had no cultural understanding or like truly like none it was just everybody I was around were white and just like us and um so we started adopting kids from Guatemala so we had six in a matter of like I said two years all from Guatemala and it created quite the stir as I'm sure you could imagine because like all of a sudden we have went from a family of four to ten like overnight and wow I mean it was exhausting not just like inside the home which ended up manifesting a lot of abuse because um, I think we were just so overstressed and there was so much pressure and it was insane what religion did yeah like, and uh, I'm wondering a little bit about like what that experience was like for you as an individual because at this point like you're at a point in your life where you're just trying to like learn about the world and understand the world and then all of a sudden you have all these other siblings and I'm sure your mom is feeling overwhelmed. Was yeah. she leaning on you during that time? Or like, what was that experience like? Heavily. So me and Isaac, I mean, completely took on mom, dad roles. So those, those two, three years were really, really difficult on the two of us. Because in that midst of time, we also got kicked out slash left the, that church. Um, there ended up being a lot of issues. I think just power struggles amongst adults but like people just being people. We ended up leaving slash they disfellowshipped us. So we weren't even allowed to talk to those people anymore. And that happened like literally, like we adopted the sixth kid. Six months later, we got disfellowshipped from the church. I am what, 13 years old. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm and my parents' marriage is dissolving. For the first time, like my parents separated that we knew of, it was a knowing separation. And so all of this, my mom went on a mental hiatus. Like she just stayed locked up in her bedroom, like researching more adoptions. And my dad was busy traveling the country with a company at that time, um, just trying to make money to afford to all of us. And um, it was just insane. So we ended up having no support system or community. I lost all my friends, got thrown into this mom duty with six new babies. By the way, they're all in diapers. And it was, I mean, chaos. We, we used to call it organized chaos, but it really was just chaos. <laughs> wow. Like was, I can only imagine. And yeah, so like, I'm wondering about like before that though, was it, was that an organized chaos? Did you guys experience like all that sort of stress beforehand at all? I know religion can sometimes, you know, uh, put that kind of stress, but like, how did it compare? When we, before we had all the adoptions and like that big shift in life, I mean, it was still like, we, we were definitely still abused. My dad had anger issues and my mom had control issues and those clashed a lot and it got take, took out on Isaac and I a lot. Um, so like, even at a young age, we got pretty used to like getting beat up. <laughs> and then like, I was also being sexually abused by family members on my dad's side of the family. So I had like, but I just, I didn't know. I, and everybody else that I talked to in my church, all my friends, like similar things were already happening to them too. So we just, we didn't, we had no frame of reference. It was just, well, yeah, of course this happens to you. It happens to me too. How many times did you get whooped? You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah. if you, it was how bad, it, like, let's compare and like, cause it was just more curiosity and then yeah. just not knowing how to communicate about it. Um, I think, and yeah, just so much religious pressure from all sides. Like there was just, it was, and, and then teachings and especially because like my mom ran her own business, made her own money. And that was kind of looked down on by other women in that kind of circle. Like they're like, wow. just stay home with the kids. And then inside the home, like she's kind of trying to put up an image of, see, we're fine. Like, 
but on the inside, we were always struggling. My mom and dad always fought. I mean, from the time I was young, but way before the kids came around, way when mm. I was young, I used to pray to God that they would get divorced because it was just so bad. I hated it. I hated them together. They did not make each other happy. And I was like, why are you doing this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was like pressure, like religious pressure. And I, I think mm-hmm. like if, but for that, like they wouldn't have stayed together and would not be together today. Wow. They would say wow. like, because of God that they stayed together, you know? And it's like, well, right. <laughs> but is that good? <laughs> yeah. And it sounds to me like, you know, everything that was happening in a way became so normalized for you and became like the socially acceptable this is how girls and and this is how we're treated in this type of setting yeah and so like from a young age I took on the mom role and like even on Mother's Day and Father's Day mom and dad would celebrate me and Isaac like give us presents and get us a cake because they realized like just how much we were taking on and they I'm sorry. Say, I have to pause on that for a second. <laughs> that is bizarre a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the kids called us mom and dad. Like they, my mom literally was absent. She was upstairs in her room all the time. And if she was around us, she was distracted on a laptop. Like she was never present. researching how to, how to adopt more children for, yeah. for you to take care of a parent. Yeah. And we never got to say, like, it wasn't until I was much older and already out of the house that I felt like I could speak my voice. And every time I was like, why are you doing this? You're putting this burden on these kids now. Like, stop adopting. Like, just stop. Not that there's anything wrong with adopting at all whatsoever. I am pro-adoption. It's an amazing resource for those that are equipped to do it. (laughs) However, my family was not. They were not equipped to adopt, not only adopt financially, but obviously emotionally, they were not able to take care of those kids, never connected with them. I mean, at that point, I'm sure later they have, I've, I've, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, but isn't was, there some uh, sort of like safe practices in place to stop people from adopting children that they aren't emotionally or financially capable or was she doing some type of private adoption yeah it was was, later it ended up being a lot of private adoptions and so like home studies got fuddled she they ended up having so many connections in the adoption community that it became fairly easy for them to adopt but like Today, I know like they can't adopt anymore because they've reached a threshold. (laughs) And until other ones leave the house, they can't adopt anymore. Well, it's good to know that there is some threshold there. Yes. (laughs) I'm just, I'm I'm envisioning you. You're this 13, 14 year old girl. You're at home being homeschooled and having to take care of all these children. And I know that you're a very intelligent person. So what did the schooling part actually look like? Like, how did you go about actually learning? I mean, it was completely self-motivated. So my mom at the beginning of every school year would order that grades curriculum from Abeka Books, which is an incredibly conservative college educational private institution down in Pensacola, Florida. Incredibly conservative. Like the history that they have still in their history books that I learned in their college, absurd, absurd and completely inaccurate. But all that to say, Um, that was my education, but she would just order us the books and we were expected to go through them on our own. There was very little supervision, very little critique. Um, and once we got the basics of math and writing and grammar down, we were like by fifth grade, it was very hands-off. So by the time it got to like algebra, for me, it was like sixth, seventh grade. I'm looking at these books, not understanding a lick of it. And I was like, you guys have to hire me a tutor. Like you have to. Because at that point, I had already established that the only way I'm getting out of this house and this situation and finding my freedom in my voice is by graduating early. So I knew by 12 that I wanted to graduate high school as early as I could, which in Pennsylvania was 16. And I was like, I'm making that happen. And so I did. (laughs) So I graduated high school at 16, completely self-motivated. I literally did two grades within one year. So like 180 school days, you can do about two grades in one year. And that's what I did for the tap for high school. So I got a tutor. I got myself into college early placement and I started college when I was 16. 
um, which looked ended up looking very different from my other siblings' education because because I was very self-motivated. I read all the time. It was my means of escape when I was a kid, like talking about like nonlinear healing. When I was a kid, I reading was my outlet and I learned everything I knew about the world was learned through books, like from Vanity Fair up to like current, like princess diaries, reading Meg Cabot novels, like <laughs> everything I learned about high school and, and, and social pressures and how to be cool or how to be uncool. Everything was learned via books. Mm. And I can relate to that too, because I think for a lot of us who grew up in situations where we were, you know, regularly abused and neglected and things like that, um, it becomes this form of escape and it's a very healthy form of escape that actually, you know, in some ways really bolsters us and, and helps us to gain that sense of independence and things. And I mean, what else is there to do in that sort of environment? Yeah. And I mean, it's definitely aided us as adults. I mean, in your life, I mean, you write and read all the time and I ended up going to law school. So like it aided me real well. So like, I, definitely, it's definitely not like unheard of. I hear a lot of people who, when they're kids, reading is an awesome means of escape, which ends up being like really helpful later on. So cool. <laughs> yes. I mean, a few and far between, but there are some helpful things that come along from it, right? For sure. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. One of them. And so, um, yeah, when I was 16, I graduated high school and started college. And immediately I was like, all right, I'm going to law school. Like, they make the most money and money is how you get freedom. That's what I knew at that point. I was like, money and marriage will get me out. Like I, I can explore my own life via money and marriage. <laughs> and um, so like early on, I was 16 when I met my first husband and uh, he was also deeply religious, but he ended up instead of evangelical, it was Pentecostal. So it was very like word of faith movement, like blab it, grab it, name it, claim it type things. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. <laughs> but I'm going to be honest, I'm lost on that part, but. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So it's, I mean, there, it's basically manifestation, but Jesus style. And so. <laughs> Interesting. So that's, yeah. So like Joel Osteen, I mean, that's, that's his realm. Like that's the modern day word, word of faith movement guy. Now I know where you're. Okay. I can, yeah. I can. Yeah, identify who he yeah. is. Yeah, <laughs> like it's all about like if you're not healthy and wealthy, then you're not a good Christian. So it's mm. just a different type of trauma and manipulation. <laughs> so, and then I was I was in that for about ten years in my early twenties, but it taught me like like the reading escape thing taught me a lot. Pentecostalism taught me a lot about how to be in the present and how to visualize exactly what I want and how to actually like make the steps to make it happen. So it mm. showed me a lot of manifestation skills that I still implement today. And in fact, I, I consider worship services my first form of meditation because <laughs> wow. that's exactly the same frame of mind that I get into now, but now I call it yoga meditation. Then I called it worship, same thing. Yeah. Isn't that being so helpful? Like so helpful. Um, obviously all of it was, there was a, a dark side to it too. And I mean, all of that was just like the pressure truly of everything. Like Gary and I, we had premarital sex and that was so shamed. Oh my God. Purity culture. <laughs> I mean, you know, purity culture, it was the whole, like, you can't date. We, I was not allowed to date at all at all so that the whole sexual my sexual liberation has probably been the most amazing I think for me personally especially considering what I do now um mm. but I mean yeah. I, yeah didn't even kiss a boy until I turned 17 um and then I had sex with my husband who I knew was going to be my husband but we were 19 and not engaged yet even and so like <laughs> people lost their minds. Like my parents were losing their, my parents like kicked me out of the house once because they found out he and I napped together on the couch, like losing their minds. And at that point I was, I think I was 19 then and they kicked me out of the house and they were like, no, <laughs> 
I was like, okay. Wow. Like, For a nap. Yeah. And then like Isaac, my younger brother, my two years younger brother, they found him having sex in their car with the, his then underage girlfriend and no problems. It's fine. They can even still date. They were allowed to go on dates and hold hands and everything, but I was not allowed to do any of that. So like even like the gender double standard of it all was just like lit. <laughs> oh, and it's incredibly, it's so potent, especially in religious culture. I mean, look at what a lot of male priests and male pastors get away with. There was just something on Facebook the other day about there was a, I might've been a Pentecostal pastor who actually had um, decided to resign because it had been brought to the attention of his congregation that he had been having an affair um, mm-hmm. with with a woman. And, you know, he tried to play it off as this, oh, I'm so repentive and things like that. And meanwhile, this girl was underage when everything began. And, you know, this is just one story out of so many. Oh, so it's many. Just another example of how we target women in these circumstances because we look at them and say, oh, they must be the slut or the whore or whatever. They tempted the man, right? It's amazing. I think I saw a quote the other day. It was like, why don't you see lesbians raping other like women? Because it's not a woman problem. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> I was like, oh, anyway. Yeah. It was just like, so ugh, the whole shame around sex thing. Like, so my parents regularly caught me masturbating because I masturbated a lot. That was another means of escape for me for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so I, I did it right until they, they would catch me. And then I didn't know what it was called though. And the first time I was allowed on the computer by myself, just to Google something, the first thing I Googled was this strange word masturbation. And I wrote it down to make sure that I got the spelling right. And I kept the note by the computer. So when I walked away, my mom saw it. She was like, why are you Googling this? And I'm like, I just want to see what it is because somebody said it to me and I don't know what it means. (laughs) Why is it spelled weird? I've never even seen a word like that. And she's like, and she's like, sat me down and she explained to me, she's like, well, that's when like you have this thing called an orgasm. And I was like, what the fuck is that? I'd been having orgasms, but I didn't know what they were called. I didn't know what any of it was called. And she's like, yeah. So like the, it just like, it feels just really good. And then I was like, Oh, that's what that is. <laughs> and how old were you when this happened? Uh, I had to have been 12 or 13, whenever we got the internet and Google to do it. <laughs> A normal was- time in which one would be masturbating. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was actually masturbating rather early. I was what my, I was sexually abused very young when I was starting when I was four. And when I was four, I was taught how to masturbate. And so like, since then I'd been doing it. I see. So it was one of those things where you were taught at a young age. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure probably without really understanding any of that. No idea. Had no idea. And it wasn't until like, it wasn't until honestly, maybe I was like seven or eight that I started to feel like I just didn't like it anymore. And I didn't Mm. want any part of it. And then I started, like, I started, I just stopped engaging at that point, but it wasn't until I was 12 that I actually confronted my abuser. And I told him if he didn't stop that I would tell everybody. (laughs) And so he was like, I don't know what you're talking about, but then nothing ever happened. He never touched me again. It was never weird again. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that's so difficult, I think about sexual abuse and sexual trauma and these aren't my words, these are Oprah Winfrey's words. Um, but you know, she talked about in one of her interviews that it's a very confusing thing for children who are sexually abused because sex feels good, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, that that is actually a sensation that's very pleasurable, but right. at the same time, you know, it's it clearly isn't it is abuse, right? So it becomes yeah. this really confusing thing for children because they're like, I I like how I feel, but I know that this isn't okay. Yeah, exactly. And I started to pick up on that when I was around eight, because like it started to become way more secretive. I started to like pee in different places to keep it from happening. Um, and that's when I realized like, cause my mom, I would get spanked for it. Cause I would get spanked for like peeing on myself or for like hiding. And that's when I knew, okay, it, it's not worth it. And so I don't want to do it anymore. It wasn't even, you know, like I just stopped engaging. I was like, this is, this has to be wrong. Cause I'm getting punished for it. 
Um, so, and, and I think my mom started to pick up on something was happening. She did try to like set up some boundaries where it wouldn't happen, but those, she wasn't very consistent. So they usually would go away. But yeah, when I turned 12, I was like, I, I felt so strongly about it that I wrote like a three page letter, um, right before showing up for one of the holidays. And I gave it to him and watched him read it in the corner and he ripped it up. And then I came out from under the court over the corner. I was like, you can't, you can't do this anymore or I'm going to tell. And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. But then, like I said, like it was, it, it ended up being fine. I guess <laughs> I still like struggled at that point. I was like regularly masturbating and enjoying it. And I knew it probably wasn't normal because I tried to talk to my other girlfriends about it and only one or two of them agreed that they knew what I was even talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so when I was 14, my mom didn't even sit down to like have, give me the talk till I was 14. And I didn't honestly even have any idea what sex was until she sat me down and told me what it was. I, for some reason, like, I was like, how do you get pregnant? I had no idea. I didn't even think to Google it. Um, <laughs> she, and she brought like an anatomy book and tried to explain it to me. And I remember sobbing. Cause I was like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All this hype has been over that. And I was like, really? And she was like cracking up and I'm crying devastated. Like that's really all there is. What is the point? I'm gonna just keep masturbating. <laughs> and then she and I had a really long talk about why masturbating was a sin. And I was like, mm, it might not entirely be. convinced. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think I'll forgive it. <laughs> it's all forgiven. Yeah. I just, I don't know. For some reason after that, I just, I had no real like inner, like inner motivated shame around sex. It was all just outer motivated. So I just learned how to hide it better. And, but still, like I was still very sheltered. So like, didn't even kiss the boy till I was 17, only ever had had sex with my first husband. Um, and then just didn't even get to like sexually explore or even know what attraction was until I was out of that first marriage. And that's when I started to actually explore like my own sexuality. Cause I knew, I knew I was always attracted to girls, but like, what does that mean if nobody else is from the outside is like judging you or telling you how to be an explorer. And so mm -hmm. it was the first time, like I got to explore with women. It was the first time I got to explore men. It was the first time I got to explore dating. I'd never dated before. I'd literally never been on a date before until after my first marriage ended. So at that point I was already 26. Insane. And now, wow. now I'm a porn erotica photographer. And sex is all I do for a living. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, so you went from Having slept with, I'm assuming just that one person, the person that you married and yep. spent what, how many, you guys were married for six years. We were married for three years, but together for seven. Right? Okay. So together for seven years and then bam, you got all this freedom. You're able to start oh. expressing yourself fully. You're able to start, you know, exper experimenting and experiencing the world really. Oh. Yeah. And and, and I, I lost at that point, I'd left the church because of their stance on LGBTQ. And I'd also stopped talking to my family at that point. Cause one of my siblings had run away because of abuse inside the home. And so I fostered her, but through the court process, my family, like my mom won't let any of my family talk to me. So completely isolated from them. So it was kind of like thrown into this realm of completely unknown with no security net. I had no family, no marriage. I, at that time I had a business that I was running but it was kind of slowly tanking cause I just didn't enjoy it. I hated it. Um, and so I'm, I'm losing my finances. I lost my family, I lost my marriage and I have all this new freedom. <laughs> When, so like, what does one do with that then? Exactly. I, I would what feel like that would be do? like, it actually would probably feel kind of like a, a dark time in a way. Oh, incredibly. I mean, probably the darkest time of my life for sure to date and probably will ever because I, I, I had a nervous breakdown at the end of 2019 
because I mean, it just, it all bubbled up. I was grieving that whole year, all of 2019, just grieving my family for the first time, grieving what could have been for the first time and grieving like not just what was, but all my ideals too. Cause with a failed marriage, like there's no, there's no really coming back from that. And so I had to put to bed everything I'd always thought about that marriage, you know, growing old together or like our wedding day. Like I had to grieve that too. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I'm probably never going to talk to this person again. Like it was, and then that's just the marriage part, let alone the business and my finances and everything else. I was just, it was very dark. I cried almost every day. Um, I ended up, I, I needed something cause I was, I knew I was in a really dark place. I'd never been in that place before. It was incredibly scary. So I literally started trying absolutely in everything. I mean, every religion other than Christianity I explored. Um, I kept my mind open to like God and Jesus still, but like I delved into science. I'd never learned science growing up. So I delved into like, what does evolution even mean? (laughs) And do I, what is the big bang theory? What is nature? What are we made of? Like, I went back to like basic fundamentals. I went back to like reading and, and the thing that I knew could like carry me. Um, so I delved into science. I was in law school at the time. Um, and I started to explore breath work and yoga and just like walking and being silent with myself because that was really scary. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then when I started to like not cry every day, I was probably like nine months into 2019. I was like, I should probably start therapy. <laughs> so I started mm-hmm. therapy for like the gazillionth time in my life, but this one stuck. And I like did my due diligence and I shopped around. There were two therapists that I matched with that I did not click with. And so I fired them and I felt good to do that. Like, that's okay. I'm literally paying for my mental health. Why would I pay for an experience? I know I'm not going to glean anything from, but anyway, so I ended up mm-hmm. therapist um, and she helped me so much. So for like six months, I had regular sessions with her, but I mean, still deeply grieving. Um, but it helped me a lot. It gave me like that light at the end of the tunnel that I didn't think yeah. I could ever see again. And, and um, tell me about like, did you have anybody during that time? Did you have any amount of support, whether there was like friends or like you were in law school? So what kind of support did um, you have? I had, I, I mean, Courtney, when I say I had no one, I had Jeannie and John. So Jeannie was somebody I'd, I'd known from the first church I grew up in. Um, but she had moved already. She was just married and she had moved out to like towards Philadelphia. And then John, who was my other best friend who I met right when I met my first husband, um, John had moved to Boston for his PhD. Mm. <laughs> Literally that fall when I had my, like, right as I was ha- like breaking, I was crumbling. Um, and then wow. I did have like an on again, off again, boyfriend, but it was the on again, off again nonsense that, and I, I mean, Courtney, I was a mess. I was such a mess of a human that year because I mean, I was utterly alone and the people that I did have were not good people. And I knew that. And so I didn't really want to like be vulnerable with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the, like, um, one of the things that I always talk to people about, um, with my patients and, and, you know, my, my coworkers and, and everybody, I, I think that like connection and community is always the most important thing when it comes to healing. And so I would feel like that time period and being so isolated and being so alone that that would feel like it would be really, really difficult to to heal and grow during that time. Incredibly. So like, that was the first time in my life that I felt safe enough to be silent but then when I got silent it was so scary that I didn't want to do it do you know what I mean does that make sense physically safe space I knew that I wasn't going to be bombarded by anybody who was going to like wreck me emotionally or physically so physically I was safe and so I was like okay well this is the time that I get quiet and I start to learn about Kelsa right but then Mm -hmm. when I started to go into Kelsa Kelsa was wrapped up in a lot of hurt a lot of hurt. And it was really scary to approach inner Kelsa for a really long time. So that's why I had to, like, I literally felt like I had to adopt 
yoga and deep breathing and meditation and those kinds of practices to just get myself comfortable with being not, not like emptying your head of thoughts, but just comfortable with the thoughts to just sit with them, to Mm. just notice them and to just feel them and, and without having to react or respond. And how did you come to those practices? Like what, what led you there Science, honestly, every single time I, I mean, I dove into science. As soon as I left my husband, I was binge watching Vox and um, the Cosmos and reading like Stephen Hawking's like I, I mean, all of it, I was devouring. And every time that I learned about neuroscience and brain science, I, it, it came in everything pointed to yoga and breath work. And even my therapy practices, she suggested this. I was like, there's gotta be good science behind it. And it's not just Mm -hmm. good science it's practical. And I was like, well, let me try it. If science says this is going to do it. And even religion say this does it, then this has to work. And it absolutely, at least for me did like, Mm -hmm. uh, I, it, it, it was, it just got me to a point of being comfortable with me. It didn't like give me any kind of like deep enlightenment. It didn't like, I didn't get into like any kind of like self-hypnosis or anything like that didn't heal me on its own. It got me mm-hmm. used to just being comfortable with the fact that like Kelsa needs healing. And like, yeah. And, and I like how you pointed out that like at first it may not have felt really good at first mm-hmm. only because I think that for a lot of people who've been through trauma and things like that in a way our bodies might not be safe right away, you know, and, and, and sometimes we can actually run into issues where, you know, we, I'll be like advising clients or patients to tap into their body and things like that. But what if their body's really heavy, right? Like what if they have a lot of grief that they're holding there? You know, sometimes you almost have to work through some of the cognitive stuff a little bit and get, and kind of get through the grief before you can really occupy your body and have it feel good and have it feel safe. It's so, I mean, on the money, like the way you worded that completely accurate. It's so true. Like I had to, I literally had to just like I saw like, I was like, oh shit, like I've got a lot of grief and hurt to even work through before I can get to that point to just sit. Like it, it was a lot, but it, I mean, and it, 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 it got to a point where I was becoming self-aware, but still nothing was changing. And I was, I knew I was healing because time and self-awareness will do that. But I knew like still things weren't changing and shifting. And that's what I, I think some of my disappointment towards 2019 kind of shifted in. Cause I was like, well, if I'm healing, <laughs> things should be changing automatically. Right? No. <laughs> mm, isn't that something, right? Yeah. You, I feel like we always picture like, you know, the before and after when it comes to he- being healed. Right. And that's mm-hmm. just not the case. <laughs> no, healing is the part of the journey to growth. That is not the growth itself. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like you can't, a, a, a broken tree can't grow. A broken tree has to heal, then grow. Yeah. Yeah. And I always say healing is spontaneous and it only happens under the right conditions too, yeah. right? Like it's only going to happen if the environment is conducive to healing. And, and when uh, you're in a really dark place like that, the environment isn't in your favor, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, exactly. So like I got to the point at end of 2019 where I knew I was healing, but I, I was so depressed and still so alone and things weren't changing. It got to a point where I wanted to take my own life and it got really dark. And I had a very good friend at the time. He reached out to me and he was like, Hey, I know that what will feed your soul is to just get away for a few days. Let's go to Miami. So we went to Miami and we stayed a few nights there and it completely changed and helped my outlook completely. It helped me see that I do have people who are willing to put their shit on the line to see me be better mm-hmm. and that I'm cared for and that I am loved. And it helped me see that I can just change things and even in, and it won't ever be bad as that, even if no matter how bad I fail, at least I, even if I really try at something, no matter how bad I fail, I'll never get that dark again. And even if I do, what do I have to lose? I had nothing to lose. Nothing. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I was literally alone and broke. <laughs> and I had no, I had nobody on my emergency contact list type alone. Like, wow. uh, like Christmas day, Easter, like alone. Um, and so going to Miami and having that trip and having him do that for me really helped open up, not, it, it helped me open up my heart again. And to see that I, part of my healing was to, was to put myself out there and to put myself out of my isolation. <laughs> Ironically, this is January, 2020. Oh boy. <laughs> You're like, I'm ready to go out to the world. Yeah. I'm literally having this revelation in January, 2020. I'm, I'm finally over the worst time in my life. And I have this revelation in Miami that when I get back, I'm going to change my life and I'm going to not isolate myself. Not that I was like purposely, but like, I'm going to actively like non-isolate, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 2020 happened. <laughs> <laughs> and oh. you know what it afforded me? It afforded me so much clarity. It afforded me the ability to close one business and start another one that I was actually passionate about and stop another business that I had zero passion for and completely hated. Um, And so COVID ended up being a real magical gift for me (laughs) because it ended up a really awesome segue into my passion. But like in the midst of all that, like I, I was still doing yoga and still doing breath work and still feeling alone, but I became really focused. I think that was the difference for me. Like I got really focused in 2020. I went from feeling hopeless to focused. And I was like, there are things I can change. I'm not hopeless in this situation. I'm not an inactive being. Like I can make things shift. I can, and I can make it shift. Like who says I can't, who says (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. I've got, I have no haters or cheerleaders right now. I can do whatever the fuck I want. And it was freeing. It was completely freeing that mindset. Mm. I could do whatever the fuck I wanted (laughs) and nobody could tell me, boo, I'm an adult with money. (laughs) Right. And so wait, I didn't realize. So 2020 was the year that you started the boudoir. Is that right? So I actually have been doing boudoir since 2016, but I I decided to go full-time in 2020. I see. Okay. So that was when you kind of stepped full-time into the role of the boudoir photography, female empowerment, that sort of thing. Yep. Yep. It was fantastic. Best decision I think I've ever made in my life. (laughs) Yes. And so you've been doing the boudoir now for a couple of years. Yep. And I know you have a gorgeous studio down in Pittsburgh. (laughs) And what, what's that journey been like for you? What, what has it been like being a business owner? I mean, you were also in law school, right? Yeah. (laughs) So many ups and downs. Holy crap. Like so many ups and downs. So like having the studio kind of making this dream come true has been a huge up. Um, I've been able to like employ other female entrepreneurs and see their businesses thrive and just like word of mouth and be a part of, like you said, community is like vital to healing. And I finally feel like I am developing and fostering an amazing community, not just like I'm fostering one, but I like a part of so many other female communities like here in the city that I just feel so fucking blessed every day I wake up. Um, But there's for sure <laughs> like days of loneliness still for sure. Cause like, especially not having like specifically family. Um, and so like some holidays will come around and I'll be like, Oh, like all my girlfriends are doing something else. <laughs> mm. But like, I know, like I, I told you this over Easter or maybe before Easter and like, I spent Easter with your family and it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. It my heart so much because I don't usually get that. And like, I don't, especially like the traditional type holidays that I really, really look forward to and enjoy and haven't had since not having my family. Um, It's been huge. Like that's been super healing for me. So like community and networking this year for me has been like key for sure. And like feeling belonging, but it's definitely still something I struggle with because I do a really, like I'm, I went to law school. That was really challenging. Um, 
some of the classes in there like totally fucked up my brain because <laughs> I was like oh so this is how corrupt the city and country that I live in is that's cool right. so it was disheartening law school and then in the midst of it I'm trying to do this very capitalistic business <laughs> so it's like I don't believe in the giant but I'm feeding the giant and mm. I feel like it's on the I don't know it's every day I struggle truly it's like every day I, I struggle with feeling so fucking grateful and magical and that I get to do this and that I get to empower women. And I get to like see them making money and help them make money and get to do things like this on podcasts. Like it's a dream come true. And then on the flip side being like, well, am I just a part of the problem? <laughs> mm. Well, that's really random. And that's just part of the, the nonlinear, right? Like I, I think that like it's it's one of those things that you have to look at it and say maybe there are positives and negatives to it just like yeah. everything else in life right, right. um and you know capitalism is what it is that's where like in the u.s that is how we live like yeah. we're a capitalistic society and if we're gonna be making money it might as well be the women making money because <laughs> we're the ones point. who turn around and give it back to our communities and give it back to other women and empower women through our work yes. um in a way that a lot of um you know male-dominated industries and businesses don't don't exactly exactly so like yeah every day I still I still mess around with different practices like over the past year, I've explored tarot and crystals, and I'm just starting to get into like aromatherapy and breath work and stuff. And it's been definitely a journey, but I'm constantly and still looking for like different practices and things to incorporate because I like, I never feel like I'm done, you know, mm -hmm. like I feel like there's something else to unravel and even learn about myself, let alone then communicate that to the rest of the world. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I know you've dropped quite a few of them, but for those who maybe, you know, are on their commuter, not paying attention, let's list some of the tools explicitly that you, that you've been using so they can try yeah. some. Um, uh, oh my goodness. I mean, embodiment practices. That's what I think is like a good term for them. Just yoga. Yoga, I think was for me foundational because it taught me how to match my breath with my movement, how to, it's okay that chatter is in your head. And that was like what tripped me up, I think for so long about yoga was like I, or in meditation in general, I was like, oh, my head has to be empty. It's like, no, no, no. It's not about you being empty. It's about being aware of the present and feeling your breath and how your chest rises and does, how does the air feel in your lungs going into your nose? Do you breathe out through your mouth? How does it feel the breath rolling past your tongue? Like it's mm -hmm. all of these things. Like it makes you really aware of your body. So like, and then just, it's okay. That chatter is there. Just come right back to yourself. And it taught me so much grace and patience with myself and how to like, listen to my body. Cause I was so disassociated from my body for so long that like, Oh my goodness. Just feeling my body. is like, Ooh, my body, like literally asking my body questions like, Hey body, are you hungry? Yes or no? <laughs> like an eight ball. It's like, okay, body, like, well, what are you hungry for? Would you like a salad? Yes or no. <laughs> and like, or sometimes it, you know, it's just, just those little things. So yoga helped me a lot with that for sure. Just like being aware of where I am and what my body is feeling down to the emotions. Like that's, that's like yoga was my pivotal point. And then breath work was, that's just like when you meditate and you might do certain like, um, in out oxygen practices, like you might go really fast breathing through your nose, or you might do really intentional, just really deep fill in your lungs, fill your diaphragm with air and then let it all out really slowly. But both of these things might do like different meditative practices or like energize you, get your blood flowing or like really get you into like a meditative state so that you can, for me anyway, um, so that I can become more aware of like what emotions are popping up and why are they popping up? And like, just like explore the emotion without having to deeply react or mm -hmm. respond at all, just feeling it and letting it roll through my body and just seeing what it does and why it came, you know? Mm -hmm. So like that, and then that for me had rolled into like journaling. Cause then I felt like it was really important for me to like catalog 
like when I was feeling certain things and why I was certain things, or maybe I wasn't even able to answer why I was feeling it, but I could at least journal with like, what was the circumstances? What were the things happening in that situation that made that emotion maybe rise up? And so like just cataloging all of that made me able to go back and notice patterns a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so, and the patterns were what like me being able to see, oh, this is the same pattern that I saw like my mom doing my whole life. Like maybe that's an, is that an unhealthy pattern or is that a healthy pattern? Is that just a pattern that needs adjusted? And so like journaling helped me do that a lot because cataloging makes you be able to like see the pattern. So like for me, those are the three biggest ones that I use. But then, like I said, I've been exploring, I've been exploring hypnosis. That's been super interesting. Um, and general meditation, and like I said, tarot and crystal work and Reiki. Oh my, super fun. Reiki has been interesting too. Yes. I know you and I uh, went to my Reiki lady, Arlene. Yes. Shout out to Arlene. That was um, like one. Yes. She's incredible. Reiki's incredible. In, I had no idea. And that's why like when we went and that was the first time I had ever done Reiki and she was explaining like some of the science and stuff and her studies at McGee. And I was like, oh my God, like mm-hmm. I literally went home and I devoured anything that there was on Google about Reiki. And I was like, and then I started getting into chakras, which helped me get more into crystals. Cause I was like, oh, like there's like this past year, I've been going through like an off on icky relationship with a guy. And like, every time I feel my heart closing, like I put a rose quartz and I put it by my heart chakra. I just keep it in my bra all day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and if nothing else, it's placebo for me to be more intentional and mindful of keeping my heart open. Every time I feel like this, the rose quartz slip or feel it, I can go, oh, this is a good moment to keep my heart open, like just to keep mindful of it. So if nothing else, even if there's no real science behind any of it, you know what I mean? Like, absolutely. And (laughs) in the words of Dr. Joe Disperza, you are the placebo and you always have the power, you know? Yes, dude, that's, that's rocking. Like that changed my life. The fact when I learned like everything can be placebo and you literally make your own reality based off of it, I was like, oh, things shifted, man. <laughs> Hell yeah. I love it. So Kelsa, tell my audience how they can work with you if they're interested in following you, how they can find you. Yes. So you can find me over on Instagram at Highline Boudoir and Erotica or on my website, www.highlineboudoiranderoticacom Um, I do all kinds of like different embodiment practice workshops. I have a few different parties this summer that takes over some of the practices. We'll be doing hypnosis and sound baths and all kinds of cool shit. And I also do boudoir embodiment exploration sessions. So I actually do boudoir sessions and erotica sessions. So I do couples, singles, LGBTQ, femme, mask, whatever you guys want. Um, But you can find that all over on the gram. Awesome. Well, we are so glad that you came on today to talk about your story and to share because I know that you've been an inspiration in my life and I'm so grateful that you and I have reconnected over the years and I know my audience is going to be inspired by you as well. Oh, thank you, Court. I was so amazing being on this and just being able to like talk it all out and honestly, like hindsight's 2020 and like this external processing is good. I loved it. Thank you. Wow, you guys, I hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed interviewing Kelsa. Her story is just so fascinating to me, and I am so grateful that we have crossed paths. A few different healing tools and strategies that I want to comment on here. I really, truly believe that things like sex and masturbation can also be used as healing tools and strategies. Um... They are very much stigmatized, a lot of taboo around that, but it's a wonderful way to release stress and anxiety. And I cannot neglect to talk about community here. I believe that healing happens in community. 
when we come together, we experience synergy. That's when our energy can connect and interact with others and come up with new and different solutions that we never would have came up with on our own. So when you get together with other humans, we're able to heal and grow in new ways that benefits us all. So yes, sometimes you need to go inward. Yes, sometimes you need to what might be perceived as isolate a bit, but healing happens in community. When it's time, you will find that community. I always encourage people to think about building a community or being part of a community that's focused on healing rather than hurting. If you're anything like me in the past when I was hurting, I tended to build a lot of friendships around said drama and pain. And a lot of my friendships were based on shared traumas. And not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, that's one way to connect. But the healing and growing aspect, it wasn't there. So if that's where you're at, if that's what you're ready to do, then look for people who are there with you. Occupying the uncomfortable zone. Wanting to heal and grow. So... Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of Nonlinear Healing with Courtney Brooke. I am grateful and I am blessed for each and every one of you who take the time to listen. Please like, share, follow. If you enjoyed this story, share it with others because you never know whose life can be changed with just words. Sharing our stories is powerful. If you or someone you know has a story of nonlinear healing, please do not hesitate to reach out. Thank you again, and I'll see you next time on Nonlinear Healing with Courtney Brooke.